Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Lisa Nelson is the CEO of the American Legislative Exchange Council. It's a 45-year-old nonprofit think tank that's dedicated to supporting free market ideals, including limited government. It is the largest nonpartisan voluntary organization of state legislatures in the United States. Lisa comes to this role with significant experience across government and in the private sector, having held executive positions at AOL Time Warner and later at Visa, and before that in government and politics. Lisa, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, I'm so happy to be here with you. What is ALIC? We are a nonprofit organization of state legislators who actually opt in to be members. When you get elected as a state legislator, there are um, organizations that automatically enroll you. The NCSL is, is an organization that automatically makes you a member, but that is paid for by taxpayer dollars. And everything that they do within that organization and structure is a taxpayer-funded involvement and engagement. At ALEC, we actually um, ask our members, our legislators, to write a check for $50. Um, a year for their engagement and that way they're invested they're engaged and they um, they love the organization that they come to and kind of consider family after they've gotten to know everybody Mm -hmm. so what do you do here we develop model policy Um, I would say that that's our core product we have over 900 model policies on our website Um, In addition to that model policy, and I know we'll get into that in a lot more detail, we have some premier publications, one that just came out yesterday on tax day, Rich States, Poor States, um, which is a 12-year ranking of the states that kind of talks about the migration of uh, citizens in states, whether it's a high-tax state or a low-tax state, and whether people choose to stay in that state. We also just published a, a book on the unfunded funded and unaccountable pension reform issue that looks at the problem that states and even cities are in where their pensions are going bankrupt and they're trying to figure out how they're going to actually keep the promise to the to the workers and the people that they had made that promise to. Um, we have a number of other guides and publications. We have a publication on Article 5, which is in the Constitution that is all about states' rights and federalism. So we do the model policy, we do publications, we put on academies with our legislators and the stakeholders in those issues, and uh, we try to help our state legislators think about the issues that they're confronted in in the states. The beauty of ALEC is that it's all legislator driven. When we think about the staff here, and we have about 40 people on staff, our staff really considers themselves as part of or an extension of a legislative office in the sense that we provide research, we provide ideas, but it's the legislators themselves that come to us with questions about an issue that they want to address. More recently, we've seen an uptick in conversations about socialism. 
people seemingly embracing this concept of socialism. You know, our motto has always been limited government and free markets. And then, of course, federalism, which people often mistake for federal government. But what it really means is states' rights. But I think in the context of socialism, you know, we would always opt for capitalism and the and the nature and the idea that businesses and job creation is what makes this economy so strong and what's what makes America great. That hard work and perseverance around job creation is so important. I don't know if you've seen the latest Scott Rasmussen poll on socialism, but he comes up with some really interesting concepts, and that is that that perhaps the younger generation right now actually thinks of socialism as something completely different. I think our generation thinks of socialism as a government-controlled answer to a problem, whether it's health care or education or something like that. And in Scott's uh, very interesting poll, he actually identifies that they, that the younger generation thinks of socialism as part of a community. They think of it as as their community and possibly even their social network. So it doesn't come with the same kind of negative connotations from their perspective. Now, it's our job to be able to educate people about the history of the, of the countries that have been subjected to socialism and the failures of it. And you try to point these things out with, you know, Venezuela is a great example to say that's not really working with government control. But I think that's that's part of the education of the youth of today and, and making sure that they understand that America was created around job creation and hard work and perseverance. What you just said is really fascinating. It's almost like a, a complete lack of understanding of what the word means. Why is that? We look at this in a lot of ways. And I would say as a mother of two children who are 26 and 24, you know, I try to understand the the younger generations, and I think that there are a lot of things that are happening right now where we maybe lived and grew up in a time when things were just a little bit slower and, and happened more slowly, and you could take the time to understand and appreciate and, and really study. I think with the internet and with social media and things like that, that kids are moving so quickly, you know, the seven second digestible soundbite and things like that when it started with television and, you know, you get these soundbites and I think people um, maybe haven't taken the time to really look at the history and the historical kind of consequence and significance of the different political parties and, and ideological diversity of, of uh, thought. Um, is it lack of I have heard others talk about this. Kathy Gillespie is a great one with her her group called Constituting mm-hmm. America, where the notion of civics as we learned it isn't being taught in public schools in the way that it used to be. How much of that do you think plays into this? I think that's absolutely correct. And um, actually, we've worked with Kathy on her Constituting America project, which I love. You know, one of the groups and subcommittees within ALEC is all about Article 5 and federalism and states' rights. And the thing that we've decided to do in the, in the coming year is to really spend some time on first principles and to even our legislators get to office. They run for office. 
they know that their convictions are strong, but they don't have that fundamental understanding of first principles and what America was founded on. So I think that we all need to take some time to make sure that that is kind of a foundation of what we're thinking about. We certainly, as staff here at ALEC, try to think about, you know, what is it that we're doing here? What what are we trying to accomplish? And and there's a lot of misrepresentations around what, um, what ALEC is all about. I would say that every day I get to wake up and fight for the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And I get to fight for those principles that were, you know, the founding principles for this country. And that's not a partisan issue. No, and in fact, ALEC is a nonpartisan organization. I've spent five years as the CEO at almost every public speaking engagement. I say I'm interested in bringing in more Democrats to the organization. We used to rotate our national chair, Democrat, Republican, every other year. We haven't been able to do that, unfortunately, in the last four or five years, just because we don't have Democrats moving up into the leadership positions. We have great participation by Democrats, but unfortunately, if they attend, they sometimes get intimidated by their own leadership from you know not participating and not, and not engaging on the issues with us. You've been involved in politics for many years. You've worked on Capitol Hill in very senior positions. You've worked in the private sector. What is the value of having a nonpartisan or bipartisan effort? Why do you need to work across the aisle? You know, I've always thought that that kind of left-right coalition or the strange bedfellow coalition was always the strongest because you sometimes confound your opponents by saying, wait a minute, why is Lisa working with this person? Or why why are they working together on this issue? I would say that one of the big successes that we've had here at ALEC in the last four years has been around criminal justice. Mm. Everyone has now heard of it because it came on on the federal scene in the last year and a half. But ALEC's been working on criminal justice issues for over 20 years similar issues to the civil asset forfeiture and the reentry issues that were just passed in the federal law. And one of our big successes was a couple of years ago when we worked with the National Council of Black State Legislative Officials and came up with some model policies together that we could work on. And just this year, our national chairman, Alan Clemens out of South Carolina, partnered with the chairman of the NBCSL, who is also from South Carolina, and they passed a whole package of reforms around criminal justice in South Carolina, which we just love to see. What about other examples of issues where you see great potential for bipartisan collaboration? One in particular is occupational licensing, where people who might be in this gig economy stringing together two or three different types of jobs. And if they have to go through kind of a burdensome or a lot of paperwork around licensing themselves for uh, the example we always use this is hair braiding, um, you know, or salons or things like that. If you have to go through a lot of hoops to try to do that, you might not necessarily be able to add that to your portfolio of things that you want to do. For spouses of veterans who are moving all the time, they don't need to file and register and get an occupational licensing for their what they do in every different state. We're trying to fight for reciprocity in those states mm-hmm. to make sure that the, that the hurdle isn't too high. So that's another area where I think it's, it's not really a partisan issue. 
I would say that education has been has has while it in some cases may be a partisan issue, the success that we've had on on charter schools and school choice in 25 years, 25 years ago it was seen as a really partisan issue, and Alec was leading the charge. I think 20 years in, it's now a nonpartisan, and you see left and right all working for better opportunities and better options for their education of their kids. Notwithstanding the fact that Alec is nonpartisan, you and I both happen to be Republicans. And we share a concern about the lack of women that we see represented oftentimes in the party. Talk about what efforts you're engaged in to try to move the needle. Well, uh, you know, it's funny on this issue because I am a woman and I am the CEO of ALEC. So I naturally think that that we're actually already putting our best foot forward in that (laughs) regard. Interestingly, the the woman that led the uh, search committee that brought me on was the Speaker of the House of Iowa, Linda Upmeyer. And on that search committee was a Senate Majority Leader in Wisconsin, Leah Vukmeyer, and and other board members that I've had as Senate President Debbie Lesko, who's now a congresswoman from Arizona. So we decided when I first came on to start something called the uh, Women's Legislative Caucus that would meet regularly and get together and kind of think about what issues can we promote and talk about that, that will help attract more women candidates and more female candidates. Now, we're not political, so we're not getting into the campaign side, but what are those things that are going to bring people and make them want to run for office? I'm not for identifying women legislative candidates to talk about women's issues. I'm much more interested in talking about the fiscal issues or the economic issues, you know, the things that are really, that we're really grappling with. That's not to minimize any of the other issues. It's just that those are the issues that interest me and most of the women legislators that come to office. So we started the Women's Legislative Caucus. We give out an award every year called the Iron Lady Award. We just thought it was a fun way to reward a woman who stands up for their uh, beliefs and has the courage to to really speak up when they see something that they want to try to accomplish in their state. You and I both work a lot on efforts outside of what you do in your day job to help encourage women to run for office, women on both sides of the aisle. Do you see a big difference in the level of participation by women at the state level compared to what you see at the federal level. And you get you have the benefit of seeing, you know, sort of a, a 360 degree view, whereas I've always tended to be much more focused on the federal side. So is there a difference? Well, I I certainly would love to see more women run for federal office. And in fact, three of the women that I mentioned, Leah Vukmir, Debbie Lesko, and Yvette Harrell from New Mexico, all ran for federal office in the last cycle. Mm -hmm. Debbie Lesko was the only one who got elected. But what I see in the states, and that's primarily where I'm focused now, is that there's a lot more, more women involved because, as we kind of have seen, all politics is local. And women tend to engage on things that they are emotionally involved with. So 
every woman that I know that has run for office has run for office because they've been motivated by an issue. Maybe it was something that they saw at their children's school, and they decided that they wanted to kind of make a, make a point of that. Maybe they were a, a, a nurse or a doctor, and they're in the in the healthcare industry, and they wanted to see a change in healthcare legislation. So I'd rather see women enter the political sphere around something that they are passionate about rather than just being a woman to run because we need more women to run. The organizations that I'm involved with, like right now and Winning for Women and things like that, all center around identifying and really cheering on more women. But within the ALEC confine, I would love to see more women just run and get involved because they're passionate about an issue. Yeah. What thought are you giving to that notion of engagement. How do we get women more engaged, even before the point in which they decide that they're going to run and ultimately hopefully get elected? But what about efforts to get them just more engaged, generally speaking? Well, and I think that at organizations like ALEC, um, we've also started something called ACE, the American City and County Exchange. You know, that's starting to drill down even lower. I think those kinds of organizations are important. School board elections and things like that. I'm actually meeting with my local precinct captain in a couple of weeks to talk about how we can get more people to actually get engaged at that level. I'm all for women's empowerment, but again, I really do think that you've got to enter in at the level that makes the most sense for you and where you've got your comfort zone and where you actually think you can make a difference. A common theme that we oftentimes hear on this podcast is that women can have challenges in articulating the value that they're able to bring to an organization, to elected office, to any number of things, that that can be an area that can trip women up. How do you think about that notion? You've had incredible um, career success in your life, and you've served at the highest levels in politics and government and in corporate America, and now at, at, at this think tank. How do you think about the articulation of value, and what advice do you have for younger women who may be struggling with this? Yeah, I I think that it's really important for women to believe in themselves. Um, Number one, have confidence in themselves. If you really believe in what you're talking about and let some of your emotion come out, sometimes that's the most authentic. Sometimes when I start to get emotional about something, I'm, I'm... that much more powerful in terms of what I'm trying to talk about. The thing that I I see with women is, and, and would say to younger women that are kind of coming up, number one, always find a role model. Find somebody that you can kind of look up to and ask questions to that, and no question is too too off the radar. You know, I, I try to hire young women here at ALEC. I've always tried to hire women. I've always tried to mentor them. When they've gone on to new jobs, I have applauded them. I've always encouraged them and said, you know, change is good. It's hard, but it's good. And so, you know, I would say to the woman out there listening, when you find your role, stay current, stay relevant, 
Make sure that you're taking advantage of the networking opportunities. I tend to say yes to almost everything. That's probably a mistake. And, uh, you know, I might have missed out on a few things at home, but I've but that has been an important part of my ability to kind of stay current and stay relevant. I love mentoring the young woman and I love supporting women in my peer group to make sure that they feel like they still have something to offer. So in addition to saying yes to things, talk (laughs) about other ways that you can really work to not only build your network, but really solidify relationships. You've done this kind of work for a long time, and it would not have been possible, most likely, had you not built a network and ultimately relationships that have stayed with you for all these years. Yeah, you know, I I think loyalty is really important. I have worked for several really incredible people, Newt Gingrich, Bill Buckley, and, and others. And, you know, loyalty to what they have taught me um, has been important. And then loyalty to to other women in in roles that are important. I try to always kind of live by that creed and make sure that I'm supporting other women. Interestingly for me, what I have found now that I'm kind of looking back over my career is that my personal friends are my professional friends. And my professional friends are my personal friends. And I didn't ever consciously make a decision to to evolve in that way but the people that i found the most engaging and the most interesting to spend time with were the people who were thinking the same way i was about issues um i have one girlfriend who said you know let's be people who talk about ideas and concepts and not people who talk about people and I've always tried to live by that. You know, I, I don't spend a lot of time talking about other people. I love talking about ideas. How are we going to make, you know, the education system a better system for our friends and their children and their daughters and their sons? How are we going to make the economic situation a better fiscal place where people have more money in their pocketbooks? So that's that's kind of how I've have built my network and kind of maintained it. Talk about your dinner group. Well, that is a wonderful group of ladies that come from a lot of other professional successful careers. And we've talked about it in the concept of, is this a sitch or an ish? And sitch being shorthand for situation and ish being shorthand for issue. What's the difference? The difference is that an issue is a lot more sticky and a lot, uh, a lot more thought might have to go into that. A sitch is something that you can just get out of if you're just clever and you take the high road and, and you move forward. It's, it's almost become, you know, a joke when we get together. Is this, are we talking about a, a sitch or an ish? <laughs> um, so I love that. And the women that came up with that and they've been through deaths and changes in jobs and loss of loved ones and to be able to put your best foot forward when you're dealing with those those kinds of issues and situations is always super helpful to have have that kind of group behind you yeah that support network absolutely is it exclusively women it is exclusively women Mm -hmm. what's the value of having a group a really strong network of women who are supporting you versus having a network of men 
Well, I, I love my husband and I love my guy friends. And in fact, growing up, I was always a lot more comfortable with men than I was with women just because I was a tomboy. We can spend another podcast talking about how many men groups I would like to be <laughs> along with. In fact, I took up golf so I could hang out with men. Um, having said that, I, I do think it's important to have a network and a support group of, friend, of women, I think, of all ages. You know, our peer group, Laura, that are our age, but maybe, you know, younger so that we can keep fresh and relevant and current on what's going on. But, you know, that to me, the ability to kind of confide in or share a concern or something that I'm working on, sometimes there's just that support group. That's the only place you can go to get true unvarnished advice and counsel. And we do advise each other a little differently than our male counterparts do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sometimes I need a very, you know, very clear clarity of thought in my counsel. And sometimes I need a little bit of nuance and a little bit of empathy. I tend to move very quickly and I make decisions very fast. It's not all bad to sometimes take a deep breath and move more slowly. I have heard you advise uh, folks just embarking on their career to think about creating a career or uh, embarking on a career to create a world that supports your passion. What did you mean by that? Well, I'm lucky because um, I've kind of arrived in this job and all of my jobs just by by kind of happenstance. People have come to me and said, would you like to do this? Would you like to do this? I was motivated at first. I I grew up in California. Um, I went to Berkeley. I grew up in Palo Alto. And Ronald Reagan was the governor. Ronald Reagan was, a, you know, somebody who personified what American greatness is all about. So I was very lucky to kind of spent my formative years in high school with him as our governor and then as president. I decided when I when I heard him speak that I was moving to Washington, D.C., and I thought I would be here for two years, maybe three years. It's been now 35 years. Um, so I've been really lucky to follow that passion. And I did not know when I came to Washington that there was a career in government relations. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what, you know, kind of the campaign side of things really truly was. But when I got here and I started getting involved in, you could call it politics, you could call it policy, you could call it passion, everything about it felt natural to me. I loved the concept of limited government and free markets. And those were two things that I always kind of had on my desk, you know, always kind of working towards that. When I think about the full circle of my career, you know, one of my early jobs was running GOPAC, where we took over the House in 1994, and that that was state legislators who were running for office. I now find myself, 30 years later, running an organization of state legislators. That, to me, is coming full circle on the importance of staying grounded in the states, understanding what's happening in the states. Those are the laboratories of democracy in terms of policy development, and then making sure that some of that translates into the national dialogue and the national conversation. So maybe now it's less political for me and much more policy-oriented, and it's much more kind of grounded in that passion that you asked about. Mm -hmm. Would you say that you get better policy ideas, suggestions, approaches, potential solutions 
because of the approach that you take here? I would say absolutely. Um, You know, the one thing I knew about Alec when I was in my uh, corporate jobs and when I was on the Hill, I knew about Alec and and why it was important as far as the conversation. What I didn't know was the, um, the familial concept that the legislators really have at this organization and the notion that they share the trust that is so clear when you come to ALEC and the legislators talking from one state to another, how did it work in your state when you tried this, you know, this policy solution? Well, you know, it might not work in that particular way for Iowa that it did in Texas because you've got a different, you know, makeup if it's an agricultural different difference or something like that. But those model policies, they're not, they're not just put together overnight. They are thought through with a lot of stakeholders, the think tanks in the states, individuals, the legislators themselves talking about and debating those issues. So as they develop that model policy, I think that passion for uh, limited government and free markets and the states developing it comes through not only from me and my staff, but also from the legislators themselves who are really driving that, that debate. Given that fact, given that you have the development of policy solutions that are really more at the grassroots level, if you will, is there an opportunity to push better solutions at the federal level as as a result? Is that something that you all are doing, is also introducing and socializing these policy solutions at the federal level as well? That's not the original intent of ALEC, but certainly that happens. When a good when a good solution or a positive solution works in a state, obviously a member of Congress is gonna is gonna see that and, and hopefully take it to, to DC. One interesting thing is that there are ninety-eight current members of Congress who are former ALEC legislators. Hmm. There are 13 U.S. senators who are former ALEC legislators, including Joe Manchin from West Virginia, a Democrat. There were four presidential candidates in the last presidential election that were former ALEC legislators, and there are nine sitting governors who were former ALEC legislators. So the idea of the ALEC model policies and ideas kind of moving up and through the system absolutely takes root because those people are shifting in their jobs. In fact, I had four legislators last year go back into county and mayoral seats after they left the state houses. So, you know, people who are public servants oftentimes decide that they want to continue to serve. Most of the state legislators that are members of ALEC have full-time jobs. You know, their, their state sessions are not full-time. Uh, there's few states like California, New York, and like and, and the bigger states that have full-time legislatures, but most of them run from January to, to April or May. So they've got their full-time jobs that they go back to, and they, lo- they just are public servants, you know, and that's their passion and their calling. We talk a lot about fear, playing through your fear, doing things anyway, even though you might be afraid. Talk about your perspective as it relates to that? Are there things that scare you? And if so, how do you continue to put one foot in front of the other and keep going? I guess I would say I'd prefer to think about it as courage than fear. What I love is to see people stand up and display courage when they know something is wrong and when it's going against their grain. What might scare me right now is the 
the types of intimidation and pressure tactics that those on the left are putting on Americans all over the country. And Alec has seen its fair share. Alec was at the tip of the spear of, of some of this probably five or six years ago. Those intimidation tactics, I think, are becoming part of the business as usual, unfortunately. I'm now hearing about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, of course, I'm for all those things, but not to the extent that it excludes diversity and equity and inclusion of thought. Um, what I have seen is that, that now uh, those tactics are going to be used against different ideologies and different ways of thinking. You saw that just recently in the, um, in the example with Google and their, they, you know, they wanted to put together, they wanted to do the right thing. They wanted to put together a, a group of people to discuss artificial intelligence and they wanted diversity of thought. And they were pressured by their employees to, to disband the group because of someone that they had put on there. It scares me that people aren't willing to stand up and push back and say, this isn't right. What I'm mostly focused on at Alec is, is looking forward. I'm looking forward at making sure that I'm fighting for the things that I believe in. I, I see that there's an intersection between the job creators, business, and good policy. I believe that business and industry has a place in policy making. I believe that all stakeholders, they're not special interests, they're actually job creators, and that they should have a role in that. I, I don't envision a future where business has been pushed out of policy making and politics completely. I hope that that's not where we're headed. I fear that that is the agenda for some and I want to make sure that at Alec that I provide a place where we, we can talk about job creation, we can talk about tax cuts, we can talk about pension reform from a business perspective and from a free market perspective. We are not believers in subsidies, we're not believers in, in handouts from the government. So we're always going to look for that free market solution. Anything that's entrepreneurial and, and that germinates from the ground up and is a new idea and a new solution, we're going to be supporting. What do you hope your legacy will be in this job? I think about that a lot because we had our 45th anniversary last year, and I thought that was a, a big accomplishment given all that Alec has been working on. And I, I think about the next 45 years. I think that if I have a legacy, it is much more about the fact that Alec is still standing and engaged and fighting for the things that we've discussed and that I have left it in a place where structurally it can continue regardless of any of the pressure campaigns and things like that. So that's what I'm mostly focused on is making sure that the ALEC today is the ALEC that we see maybe in another 45 years. The pressure can get really intense and the criticism and the bullying through social media, frankly, with a political aim can be just extraordinary. You've had you've spent a lifetime in and around politics as have I and I've never seen anything quite like this. How do you stay focused on the mission? You know, I think that probably my time with Newt helped me in that and anytime I think about 
you know, any pressure or any social media or anything that is coming my way or directed at me personally. I remember what Newt said about about something that we talked about years ago, and he just said, Lisa, they're just biting at my ankles, shake them off. And, you know, that's a that's a visual that I think about a lot because, um, you know, we're constantly faced with with people saying that, that we've got different motives and different agendas. And I just stay focused on the fact that I'm fighting for the way the Constitution was written and fighting for states having power. You know, sometimes that puts me at odds with my friends in Capitol Hill. But I think that that's an important piece for our friends in Washington to remember, too, is how important the states are and how important all of the states are not just a select few you know there's 50 states and there was a reason that our system was set up the way that it is Lisa you have lots of opportunities to advise young women who are just embarking on their careers as you were taking on bigger and bigger jobs you had very young children who are now in their 20s so they are launched into the world how did you deal with the notion of mommy guilt? Is that something that was a challenge for you? I had the luxury of having a very supportive husband. I was pregnant in 1994 when we took over the house and uh, when I was working with Newt. And my husband ended up really putting his career on hold. He took five or six years off just to make sure that we had somebody that was that was at the house and he was able to work from home. So that's, that's one piece that I would say, always think of your career as a team effort. If you are married and you're thinking about, you know, staying in the workforce, talk about it with your spouse as as you know a team effort the second thing is i would use my job and the things that i was working on as a conversation piece for dinner time i did have a rule when i worked on the hill that when i took the job they i i said i will only be you know staying in the capital late one night a week because i've got to be home to to have dinner i grew up in a family where we had dinner what by candlelight, you know, a formal dinner every night. We didn't sit at the kitchen table or on stools. We sat at the table and 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 had conversations with my parents and my sister. So I wanted to create that same environment for my children. Luckily, my husband agreed with that, and that's the way we raised our children. We talked about things at the dinner table, and I think that that's helped them understand what the challenges are as they've gone through college and launched their careers, but also given them a foundation that they can kind of try to emulate when they when they start to build a family what about the notion of balance you know um I had a time when I was, uh, I think I was pregnant with, with my second, and I was working really hard and long hours, and I thought, everywhere I am, I want to be in the other place. And then when I finally realized that that was the case, I thought, wait a minute, I can just enjoy where I am when I'm there, and then when I get home, or vice versa, enjoy that. But, you know, the notion of balance is making sure that you stay focused on what's important. I always go back to the the Billy Crystal line in with Jack Palance when he was going through his midlife crisis in that movie, City Slickers. He said, what's the secret to life? And Jack Palance said, it's, it's just that one thing. And Billy Crystal looked at him and said, well, what is that one thing? And he said, that's exactly right. You have to figure that out. And when I saw that, I thought, I know exactly what my one thing is. It's my family. 
And so when you have that core and you know that that's the one thing and that everything else kind of fits around that, that's what's important. Jack Palance had it right. Once you find out what that one thing is, everything else kind of falls into place. We ask every person who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, a mantra. Maybe it's (laughs) something you wish you had known when you were just starting out or something that you've shared with your kids. What would be yours? I have a couple. Um, One is take the cookies when they're passed. Um, (laughs) And I say that to a lot of people. Sometimes you actually have to make the cookies. But, you know, when someone comes to you with an idea, when someone comes to you with with a concept or even, um, you know, a change in your life, think about it. Don't immediately dismiss it. So that's one. Gay Gaines from Florida taught me that. Um, The other is much more of a professional mantra, and I would, and I teach it to my staff here. It's vision, strategy, project, tactics. And that is something that we, that we, lived by in Newt's office that I took to all of the offices I've ever had. First, what is your vision? Then how, what is your strategy to achieve that vision? And then you can get to your projects and your tactics and actually start to define what are your day-to-day things that you're going to do to achieve that vision. Yeah. Lisa, thank you. It's terrific. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. You can learn more about Lisa on our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There we'll include show notes from today's visit, along with a few photographs and links to her website. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. As always, thanks so much for listening.